0: We just got the notification that we're live, so uh, we are live. Welcome back to the uh, Stride for the Love of Running series. My name is Evan. I've uh, been your host last week, I'll be your host this week as well. Uh, Today we have Ginger Gottschall. Uh, Ginger is a PhD from the University of Colorado. She has a postdoctorate from Emory University in Neuromechanics, and she was associate professor at Penn State. Recently, she re- she is a research advisor to Les Mills Fitness, a science advisor to the American Council on Exercise, and the founder of Fitology and Ginger and Co. Fitness. Ginger, I feel like I am out of breath just reading the introduction from all the accolades. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing this morning?
1: I am doing fabulous.
0: For awesome. All. All things considered, it's been a fun day and I'm psyched for this. Awesome. Yeah, we are, we are so psyched as well. Um, well, I should say good morning for us and then it's a uh, good afternoon, I suppose, for you because you are in New York right now. It
1: is. I'm in New York
0: City. And then uh, we have people, uh, you know, tuning in from, from around the world uh, in a bunch of different time zones. So, um, Ginger, I gave the uh, kind of intro about you. Can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and what you'll be talking about today?
1: Absolutely. This all started for me, oh gosh, I'm now dating myself, over 20 years ago, when as a sophomore in college at CU Boulder, Mm -hmm. I got into triathlon. Mm -hmm. And it was great for me because I'm going to be honest, I have a swimming background. And... I ran because I played soccer, and mm-hmm. I was one of those that didn't have really great technical skills in soccer, so I was a perfect halfback because I had excellent endurance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could just be on the field and running. Mm-hmm. But when I got into triathlon, I was just getting injured mm-hmm. um, Knee pain, lateral hip, I mean a lot of the initial sagittal plane motion that mm-hmm. triathlon into a cycling and running all in one plane. Right. And a roommate of mine who is not at all a fitness buff said, you should try this class called body pump. Mm. I was like, That's a terrible name. It does not sound like thing <laughs> I'd like to do. And I prefer to be outdoors. Right. But I began this and it was a high repetition, low weight strength training class, full body. 55 minutes, Mm. basically take five minutes and you go through the entire body, start large, gets into some isolation. And what it did was completely change how I trained because I could do this full body strength training just twice a week. And I literally was never injured again. Wow! So I now, this is 25 years later, I run six days a week and I've
0: never had to veer away from that due to injury. Wow. That is, that is amazing. Cause that's usually one of the things you hear from, um, if there's any studies out there, it's like, oh yeah, 50% of runners get hurt every year, or even, even more than that, or you know, Absolutely. every runner identifies with, you know, training for a goal race. And all of a sudden you get it taken away from you because you have overstepped in training or you haven't done the right stuff to prepare your body. So it's amazing to hear that.
1: Yes. I'm going to give you my secrets <laughs> I, I'm not even gonna beat around the bush and yeah. it, but my main things are, which are as follows. one, take one full day off a week and for runners, I know this is really difficult, but honestly, you need two sleep cycles and a full day to recover and to replenish both physically and mentally. We're talking mm-hmm. from the nutrition standpoint all the way up to the neuron level mm-hmm. Two, never increase your running miles more than 10% in a week. So be very specific about what that training profile looks like and what your goal is and how far you're moving up in miles. And three is incorporate strength training twice a week. That includes mm-hmm some specifics to the core. And by core, I actually mean from shoulder to hip. So things that we don't always think about in running.
0: Right. Cause that's, that's usually like a term that people toss around, right? Is, oh, I'm going to do my core, but it's a whole, whole big thing. So I'm sure you'll clue us in um, on on the whole routine and just kind of, yeah, what you mean more by that. Yes.
1: Yes. The first part of this, I just want us to all think about running as a more three, dimensional and not just a leg activity. Let's start from the top. If you go from your shoulders and just this upper part of the body, you want to have a strong posture, which is going to include those posterior muscles in the back to keep your chest upright. And so you can be in a well-grounded center of mass. Two, you are literally in a isometric contraction for your biceps when you're flexing the elbow the entire time. So that means we need to be also thinking about not only the postural muscles of the back, but also the anterior muscles of the arm with respect to being economic. Mm -hmm. Then if we get to this whole torso area, there's a lot going on when we run here. It's not just staying in one plane. There's this rotational movement which is going to incorporate what I call the three dimensions. You've got your anterior core, the posterior, which is the erector muscles, and then your obliques here on Mm -hmm. the side. So you have to focus on the whole torso. Then you get into where things really increase your risk of injury. Once you get to the hips, runners are really strong when it comes to the hip flexors Mm -hmm. and more on the quads. This is a lot because when we run uphill or when we're going faster, the quads are dominant. We need to focus more though on the hip stabilizers, specifically the glute med. The glute med is the middle sized of the three glute muscles and what it does is help with knee tracking. Therefore, when you land from that aerial phase, it's going to help keep the knee in a safe position and allow the fibers more distal to actually keep the patella in place and keep the knee safe. Then as we go down, of course, critical in terms of both calf muscles, the soleus and the lateral gastroc, and medial gastroc, but the gastroc are actually your propulsion muscles. And as well as the anterior tip, if you've ever had shin splints, you know that feeling of how the anterior tib starts to give you some swelling on the front of the shin and a lot of that is actually foot placement. All of this hip to ankle movement is going to be dictated by how strong your core is. So one thing I encourage you to do in the next run or or two that you do is don't wear any headphones, go out by yourself and listen to how quiet or loud your foot strike is. The quieter you are landing, the more braced you are. And that will also decrease the force and take some pressure off of the joints of the ankle, the knee and the hip. This will also come with building those muscles. So you have that impact absorption from the muscles, but it's going to originate more proximally at the core. So that just gives you a little summary preview of how full body strength training can actually really be important in running because it's not just a leg activity and it actually matters on what you're focusing on with respect to which muscle groups. With that said, it's not the heavy lifting that you see in typical CrossFit gyms or powerlifting and Olympic lifts. I'm talking here about high repetition and low weight. And what do I mean by high repetition? Talking like 100 squats. Doing 100 squats, either just body weight or with 10 pounds, 10 to 50 at your max. Lunges is my second body exercise that I'll go over specifically that can really help runners in terms of their leg mechanics. And the third and final is doing some ab and adductor activity, working on that glute mead and getting your the muscles on the outside here, including your tensor fascia latte, which is right here at the hip. Those three exercises are really the key for body weight exercises to help the mechanics. Also, today I'm going to be showing you three of the the most important core exercises that are called integrated core exercises, meaning they're giving activity to the entire three dimensions of the core, not just isolating one at a time. In terms of research, before I get to the actual activities, there probably the majority of running injury research has to do with the hip muscles. So that's why I'm going to show you some of the key ones for the outside of the hip. And my research specifically in the most recent, so just in 2019 that I published, shows that these core exercises, three-dimensional core exercises can improve your running economy and speed, as well as increase or improve your running symmetry. So that's how much time each leg is on the ground and also distributing the force on each landing between each leg evenly. So that's a lot at once, but basically I want to impress upon you the importance of three bodyweight exercises and three core exercises that can help reduce your risk of injury as well as improve performance, which is economy and speed. So with that, any quick quick questions before I show you some of these exercises?
0: Yeah, um, I I have two things that I want to mention very briefly. Uh, One, if you're listening to the audio version of this, we'll be posting a, uh, a full uh, video recap of this as well. So this is going to be a very uh, interactive um, demonstration, I imagine. So if you're listening to it, you can kind of get a general gist of it, but um, we will have a full video of this is something that I do want to mention. Um, and then, uh, well, I guess I have three things. Uh, two, I know on your uh, so- some of your social media, you post examples of some of these uh, video exercises as well, um, if, if I believe correctly. So some of these might be, on your social that you can maybe talk about it at the end to kind of plug where people might be able to find you.
1: Absolutely. At Ginger Fitness, I have links to these exercises on both Instagram and Mm -hmm. YouTube. (laughs) Awesome. Ginger with a J.
0: Ginger with Jay and we'll we'll send out full recaps of this. And then third, um, the one thing that I know just from being around runners uh, for the past couple of years is you mentioned a couple um, different parts of uh, the body. You know, like obliques, people might be familiar with biceps. Obviously, everybody loves those curls. The one thing I think that trips a lot of people up is what is the gastroc? Because that's something that people that might be in physiology are very familiar with. But if a normal uh, runner that might not have that background, uh, Here's that. can you just tell them what part of the body that is and where it might be related to that they might be more yes. familiar with?
1: That's a fabulous question because it was one of the muscles that I focused on during my PhD. So here we have what is called the shank. The shank is the segment between your knee and the ankle. And the muscles in the back of the leg are what extend the ankle these muscles in the back of the shank are also your propulsion muscles they're going to provide that push off after you land now these that form that little shelf that you'll see that muscle belly here is the gastroc it has an outside part that's the gastroc lateralis and the inner portion is the medialis So the gastrocnemius actually has two separate heads. Then if you go down here and you palpate this muscle that's still in the back, but that's much closer to the ankle, that's the soleus. The soleus is a lot flatter. It doesn't have as much of that muscle belly that you see in the gastroc. And the soleus is one of the highest percentage of slow twitch muscle fibers, which give you the endurance The soleus can be on for hours and hours at a time. It's really responsible for more postural so it doesn't give you as much of that push that the gastroc does. All three of these, if I include the gastroc lateral and medial as well as the soleus, are going to come into your Achilles tendon and then wrap around the bottom of the foot. So those three muscles all join together into the one distal tendon ankle extension. So that's gonna. That's probably one of the most critical muscle groups for runners.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and I know probably a lot of people are more familiar with, uh, you know, having a bout of Achilles tendonitis or like, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I, I know the Achilles and I may have heard of the soleus before, but that gastroc I feel like is the thing that always – trips people up, um, just in terms of seeing it and be like, I have no clue. Is that on the top of my head or is it in my finger? (laughs) Exactly. Cool. Well, um, yeah, no, totally uh, go with uh, all the demonstrations you have. I'm so excited to see this. And I know uh, the people watching live uh, are are really, really excited for this as well.
1: Cool. Let's start with these bodyweight exercises. And let me repeat, you can do these and they are effective even if you have no weight. If you would like to increase the intensity of these or you're already doing some type of weight training, they can be done with very little minimal weight, holding just even 10 pounds in each hand would be significant. Or if you're doing something on the back, 50 pounds is really the max that you would ever really need to see any gains because we're again, we're thinking high repetition, low weight. Let's first start with a squat. A couple different things I want to bring up. One is probably the most practical and safe for a runner is to do what's called a mid stance, which your feet are outside of hip distance and you want to point the toes out a bit. I'm talking about a 25 degree angle if you're thinking straight on so about 25 degrees out important to have an open and upright chest and to lead the movement with your hips that means it is as if you are sitting back into a chair my chest stays upright the hips lead the motion and you only go down to about knee level see how my knees are also tracking over the toes then you have to consciously activate the glutes As you come to a stand again, this can be done plate or weight here at your chest, or if you are in a weight room or you have your own equipment at the house with a bar on your back. Mid stance. 100 reps. (laughs) Not kidding. You could break these up into maybe Four sets of 25 with a couple of breaks, but we're talking endurance and low weight here.
0: I have uh, one quick interjection yeah. that I might ask. Um, if if somebody uh, maybe hasn't, m- maybe somebody is used to doing like a strength routine where they do five times five reps, but it's very heavy weight, uh, would you suggest uh, maybe a structure where they could build up to? So maybe they're not used to going above 10 reps, would doing 10 by 10 be fine, just looking for overall volume? Or would you suggest... Maybe doing 5 by 20 4x25. What's maybe something if somebody's used to lower reps, higher weight, what's an easier way to start to transition maybe over a couple weeks?
1: You could absolutely modify that program. Again, kind of thinking about 10%. Mm-hmm. So taking off 10% of the weight and adding 10% of the reps at a time doesn't sound like a lot and it's a slow progression, but honestly, it also depends on just how you feel. You could see if you are getting the same range, if you can stay at a very consistent pace and not compromise your range, see how many reps you could get Mm -hmm. with maybe half the weight, Right. take a nice break and then work your way up. However many you get in a set, then just continue to take those work rest intervals until you get to 100 reps. All right, next is probably the trickiest that I don't wanna make any assumptions, but from what I see is it typically, is an exercise not typically done properly. This is the lunge. The lunge is a fabulous exercise to target the medial glute. So again, we're talking about knee tracking here. It's one of the hip stabilizers. Best thing to do is to actually come down into a 90-90 position. What does that mean? That means that the front leg, your knee is at 90 degrees. The back leg is on the ground, knee at 90 degrees. You tuck the back toe under and lift up. That is the length between your feet. And most people don't have this length. At this length, it would be literally impossible for me to drop my heel down in the back. That's how you know you are in a safe position. The lunge is led with the back leg knee until the front knee goes to 90 degrees. This does not mean this knee touches the ground. In this position, I should be able to see my toes and the front knee is stacked over the ankle you lift up by driving through the front heel and activating the back glute. If you have a weight, the weight goes in the hand of the leg that's going back. That's going to maximize the glute need activity on that. So this is both legs though, as I lower down, drive up through the front heel, I'm actually getting some hamstring here, glute here, And the quads are firing actually in both directions. So it's a
0: win-win altogether. Awesome. And how many um, reps would you do for that one? Is it the same sort of volume that you'd be looking for? Same, 50
1: on each side.
0: 50 on each side. Awesome. And then um, could you show that uh, setting up positioning just one more time, maybe with a little bit of instruction, just say maybe here's this cue, here's that cue, just the progression towards getting in the right position?
1: Absolutely. This doesn't have to be done every time, but in the beginning it really helps. A Couple of additions. So you set yourself a 90-90, front knee 90 degrees, back leg 90 degrees, and your front foot is hip distance away from the back knee. So you're actually hip distance apart if I was to, if you're looking from that angle. You tuck the back toe under, press up, the front heel and there's your start position. In this location you could then grab the weight as you're lifting up, then you drop the back knee down until the front knee is at 90 degrees, push through that front heel and drive up. Another thing, once you're down in this position, if you have two small weights or two blocks or two of anything, you could put one at the front toe, and one at the back toe just so you were aware of what that length is if you were doing multiple sets so you didn't always have to come into this set position this is just a great way if you're starting to want to do a lunge properly that you would get into position
0: and then you mentioned um you know when you press up through as you're in that position now like your left heel you're pressing up through that and you mentioned uh you know your quad is firing on the way up, and like your glute on the right hand side might be firing as well. Is there any sort of uh, cues that people should pay attention to? Should it feel like a very quick movement? Should you take it like slow at first and feel the muscles sort of activating in in turn, or what would be the recommendations there?
1: In terms of speed for all of these, you always want it to be in control and maximize the range that means in terms of range you want to make sure that this front knee gets to 90 degrees and the front thigh is parallel to the ground before you start to drive up and everything should just be very smooth and controlled i'm actually not as worried about pace here if you were doing a strength workout that you wanted to be more of endurance and speed you could do that with lighter weights but for the most part it's just being in control and maximizing the range. So I'm not, not as picky about the speed. That can be much more individual.
0: Awesome. Yeah, now that's great. And then uh, number, number three?
1: The third. All right, I'm going to bring a prop into this. This is not required, but this is just a resistance band with handles. There are resistance bands that you can get and that are just... A piece of elastic, and you could simply take one of those and wrap it around your hands. But there are two options that I want to show you, even though it's kind of targeting the same thing one with equipment and one without. The first one I'll show you is with the tube. If you've got any sort of resistance bend or tube, all you're going to do is step into it, and this does need to be done with shoes, cross the handles or cross. The band if you're just using the elastic without handles and then lift it up to your hips the exercise from here to isolate the glute lead is very simple you're going to sink down into just a very small angle squat so the weight is in your heels and take the leg out out and in and you try to keep your upper body very still this is one of the best isolation exercises for the muscles of the lateral hip If you don't have any equipment, then I recommend a shallow single leg squat in a different position than you may have seen it. For this, I'm just going to put one leg in the front. The opposite leg is just a gentle toe down in the back and you literally shift your torso to be in a shallow diagonal line in front of you and lift the back leg off the ground and do a single leg squat. This looks very simple. It gets extremely intense by about a rep 10. You are not only helping with knee stability by training the fibers right by that patella. But all of the stability and balance is isolated here on the outside and inner hip. So it is fabulous option if you don't have equipment. That would be my third exercise for you.
0: Awesome. And then the same sort of thing there with its 50 on each side for a combined total of 100 reps. And then I
1: I can't do 50 single leg squats in one set. mm -hmm. So I have been doing this now for over 10 years and I still can't get, (laughs) (laughs) I have to take at least one break. I can sometimes get a very quality 40, but
0: it's pushing my limit once I get past 25. Awesome. Um, I guess two questions I'd have for this one uh, (laughs) is if somebody did want to get the prop that you were using, what is that uh, type of band? Or would you have a recommendation for um, using that if somebody feels more comfortable maybe having sort of like that that device that they can kind of interact with? Yeah,
1: the handles are nice. This happens to be a Les Mills and I'm going to talk about where you can find some online classes that are going to have all of these exercises in one 30 minute class. This is a Les Mills, it's called CX Works, C-X-W-O-R-X, that's the class type and you can find these on their website, they're under $20. You could also just look up resistance band with handles on Google. The only thing I want to warn you about is some of these resistance bands have a fabric around the elastic. You don't want that. So you just want the actual elastic. You can also buy for literally $2 a piece. It's just a strip of elastic. And it's very thin and there's multiple different densities and stiffnesses. And you can start kind of on the lighter one and then
0: build up. Awesome, and then the number two thing, if somebody is doing the approach without the prop and they're looking for some sort of uh, positioning cues for that single leg squat you mentioned, the toe like very gently touching the ground like for, for the back foot, um, does it help to do things in front of a mirror to get the positioning down uh, for, for, for this exercise as well?
1: It does. And. My suggestion is actually to use your phone and video yourself. That's the best way for beginning exercisers to actually see what they're doing. I think the mirror is helpful. In my apartment here in New York, I don't even have a mirror. So I oftentimes when I'm trying exercises, trialing them for clients, I'll just video myself and uh, get different views of it. But it, because, Everybody has a different style of learning some people need to see themselves doing it They need to feel it other people can just watch others other people need to hear the cues So that's why I think some of these online videos are really helpful And then take yourself and you can do a little compare and contrast
0: Awesome, that's great. Uh we have One uh, viewer question right now, before uh, we move on to the next segment, Um, this is from Sarah. And Sarah says, can Ginger explain a bit more why the quads take over as the dominant muscles when running at higher speeds? Why would quads take over versus glutes and hamstrings firing with more effort? And this is from Sarah.
1: Yes, as you increase speed, probably the predominant group that's going To still be the main propulsion muscle is still the gastroc. But the quads can actually take over in some of that force production as you are pushing off the ground. Once you push off and you got that push off, then you get the activation from your knee flexors or the hamstrings but it's actually the generation during that second portion of the stance phase where you get the high activity, mostly from the ankle extensors, the gastrocnemius, but the quads will actually increase their firing as the force level goes up. Interestingly, it's not as great of an increase in the hamstrings during that higher. You also see this larger percentage increase in quad activation. And I'm actually going to tell you, it's very specific to vastus lateralis going uphill and upstairs. As you increase the speed and you increase the angle of incline, it's the vastus lateralis that has the largest increase in activity in addition to the gastroc.
0: Awesome. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, I will say, if anybody else has other questions, uh, please feel free to drop them in the chat and then uh, producer Gus will uh, send them forward to us. Uh, and then if anybody has questions uh, afterwards, maybe specifically for you, where is the uh, best place to, to reach you or interact if they have any uh, sort of specific questions?
1: Ginger email at gmail.com.
0: And that's Ginger with a J yes j
1: e r email at gmail.com i live for questions like, <laughs> it's like my favorite thing is when people have an issue to be able to provide a, a little tip Is
0: yeah awesome um, so i what part did you have planned next cuz we have uh, sort of like seven follow up questions that we have for you but i uh, what uh, do you have plan next after these exercises? Uh, the, the floor I is still totally yours.
1: Three integrated core exercises
0: and yep. then questions. Is that cool? Awesome. Fantastic. Okay. All
1: right. First, just a little bit of vocabulary integrated versus isolated. Isolated exercises are going to target one primary muscle group. For instance, a crunch. Very simply. Can you still see me? Okay, fingertips at temples, just rolling the shoulder blades off the ground, chin is tucked, looking right between your leg. That's an isolation core exercise. Really important to do, but if you are pressed on time and you only want three, or you only have time for three, integrated. Integrated is actually going to have activity on all three dimensions, and here are the three exercises. The first one is a forearm plank. I call it a hover. Set yourself up first on the knees, hip distance apart, shoulders stacked directly over your elbows, press the forearms down into the ground. And when you're ready, tuck the toes under and lift up. The spine is long, gaze is slightly in front of you, and you activate literally everything by pressing your forearms down squeezing your kneecaps up to your hips and holding this. How long should you hold? 30 seconds would be a fabulous goal to start. If you can work yourself up to two minutes, that's awesome. But the key is not letting your hips sag and not letting them come up above it too much like a down dog in yoga. Again, Having a partner there, a mirror, or videoing you is cool. The variation of this this is the second exercise is simply the same thing but done on your side. So you can get into this forearm plank hover position, then bring one fist towards the side you're going to open and lift up. My feet are staggered in a scissor. This can be also done by just stacking them but the key is having the hips lifted off the ground. If this is too much just like the forearm position and the center you can bring it down to one knee. You're getting three-dimensional work but it's actually doing a great job of firing up these lower obliques on the bottom side. So you would want to do similarly 30 seconds on each side would be a great start working up to a minute if you wanna take it up to the extreme at two, fabulous. Third and finally, a bridge. You have no idea that this is actually such a fantastic exercise again for the glutes. It also helps low back pain, front knee pain. You're gonna pull your heels as close as you can to your hips, lie down drive through the heels, activate the glutes and lift up, pull the shoulder blades in, so there's nothing on the ground other than the top of the shoulder and your triceps. You could make this dynamic by lifting up off your heels or doing some lower and lift repetitions. Lower and lift, we're again gonna shoot for those 100 reps. Or you could make it static by just lifting off of your heels, activating your glutes again for the 30 seconds, working up to a minute, going for two when you're the expert.
0: Awesome. That's fantastic. I can tell that you're an expert because you are carrying on completely casual conversation while you're doing these. So I can absolutely tell that you have uh, tons and tons of uh, practice with this stuff.
1: Lots, lots of practice in, the, in what I call a hover, a forearm plank.
0: Awesome. Cool. Uh, well, those were great, great examples. I think uh, those are maybe activities that people are um, you know, used to seeing, but maybe don't think that it's enough, right? So think you have to make it really complicated, do all these complex movements. But um, what you're showing is that you're literally just trying to integrate the different, like like you mentioned, the three dimensions. You're trying to integrate those all together instead of just doing you know, the bicycle twists or the, you know, the, the movements where you have to just turn constantly. If you're just activating these muscles and holding and building up to it, it's, it's enough is what you would say.
1: Absolutely. Those exercises like the bicycle twist is another example of more of an isolated. You're, you're really focusing on anterior and with each twist, getting to the obliques. Those I'm not saying are bad. I just want to give you three critical integrated moves that if you are pressed on time and you just get back from a run and you've got like 15 minutes, then you could you could easily incorporate these three exercises in and do some really important prevention
0: work in terms of injury. Awesome. And then uh, just uh, to kind of tie all these things together, you mentioned at the top, that I, all you'd need to do is add these at least to start two days a week. Yes. Awesome. And if
1: you did these body weight exercises, as well as the core exercises two days a week, that's really all you need in terms of maintenance and prevention, I think working up to longer periods of time, for instance, doing a full body weight workout twice a week. And then the core exercises as supplemental two to three times, that would just be a very short workout, like 10 to 15 minutes is fantastic, but not everybody has got the time for that.
0: And then I imagine at least one person might have this question out there. Um, You know, they see these uh, two times three exercises. Is this something that I would do all bundled together, at least to start? Like I would do the, um you know the 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 squat and those type of movements first and then do the core or should they do the core and then the other exercises first just because i imagine people have uh, you know this question before they might start
1: yes excellent question and this gets to probably one of the biggest debates in fitness which is order of exercise when you're doing strength training do you do core first or second when you're doing both cardio and strength in one day, which comes first? For runners, I feel very strongly about this order. Do your run first, then if you have another half hour at the end of that or later in the day, do the body weight exercises first and then the core. Same order if you're doing them all in one session. Go for your run first, come back, do the three bodyweight exercises,
0: then the three integrated core. Awesome. And uh, maybe one follow-up for that is let's say I do my run and then I do my bodyweight exercises and then I have to hurry off to work, um, have a great time at work, and then I come home what sort of warm up would I potentially need to do uh, if I were to do this integrated core uh, in the in the evening, and I still wanted to check the box, I still wanted to get it done that day? Is there any sort of light warm up you might suggest for this?
1: Yes, you really only need three minutes. I call it an accelerated warm up, but three minutes minimum. That could be if you've got a treadmill in your house, just doing in a very easy job or incline walk. If you don't have a treadmill, I don't, then It would be doing some very easy, faster squats or easy jog with some high knees on the spot. But get moving, get the heart rate up, feel that warm sensation. You just want to be on the edge of breaking a sweat before you go into those core exercises.
0: Awesome. Cool. We're gonna go uh into some of the follow-up questions we have. They have partially already been answered um, with your great presentation, and then we will ask any of the question and answers from the viewers right now. So um, our first question was how to start. You answered that by giving us three exercises and how do you prioritize body weight exercises, uh, resistance training? And then maybe uh, one part of this is plyometrics. Can you talk maybe a tiny bit about plyometrics if people normally do that, how this fits in that equation? I can.
1: I would be happy to chat with individuals about their schedules, but plyometrics is absolutely a dimension that I encourage advanced runners to incorporate into their training. But folks, it's it's a maximum of two days a week, and you've got to have at least forty-eight hours separate those two plyometric routines. And when I say plyometric, this has got to be intense. It can be body weight. It can be things like tuck jumps. It could incorporate things like a plyometric box or bench. It could be doing some bounds upstairs. Those are all options. But if you're going for a real plyometric workout, you've got to go for it. And I'm talking 85% of your max heart rate in this. Incredibly helpful with respect to, especially if you're on the, short, the shorter distance of the endurance phase, we're talking 5, 10Ks, the, you can really see a big difference with this. because it's going to help with propulsion. But it, it it is something that really breaks you down. So you have to be careful about when you do it and how often you do it.
0: Awesome. Um, so our next kind of follow-up question was where to look for improvements. We often see that a runner who performs supplementary training, uh, they might immediately see a boost to similar metrics like uh, things that stride records like ground contact time, leg spring stiffness. However, for runners who are not yet running with data, what should runners look for mentally uh, to see if they're experiencing any benefits from this sort of routine? Should they be getting leg soreness? Should they be able to reach a higher top end speed? What kind of improvements might they be able to see?
1: I think the most visible would, yes, top end speed you would, I would definitely expect to see a difference, especially that's what some of the data from the core study showed and these individuals were doing, they worked up to three times a week, but they were doing two to three times a week of 30 minutes of integrated core and they saw differences in their top end speed as well as economy. How can you measure economy? Use one of your regular runs that is primarily interruption-free, meaning not a ton of stoplights. Maybe this is done on a treadmill. Maybe this is done on a track. I have one that that I use that kind of outlines some parks in New York City, so I avoid lights. Use that route, that distance, and run it. And if you have a heart rate monitor, awesome, because what you would see is, Maybe you get the same time, but your heart rate is at an average lower. So lower average heart rate for the same time. If you don't have a heart rate monitor, then running it and seeing your improvement in speed, meaning shorter time to get the distance done.
0: Awesome. And uh, that kind of goes hand in hand if you have, um, you know, maybe – uh, yeah, you you use a heart rate heart rate monitor uh, in conjunction maybe with stride. You might be able to see yeah ground contact time, some things that we normally see if somebody okay. has a sort of device. But they should be able to even if their only thing is a stopwatch or look at the microwave before you leave, and then when you come back, look at the microwave and see how long it took exactly. you, something like that. That's, so. That. Yeah. Would you say that also, like, let's say I was running in Central Park, and I noticed uh, up one of the the longer climbs there, it might feel maybe easier, or I should notice a difference over a couple week uh, time period, Um, would be able to, like, the ability to run hills easier? Would that maybe be something you could pay attention to?
1: Definitely. Yes. And if you're wearing a watch, or you've got your phone, and you know, when a hill is coming up, you could do another quick experiment with that. In terms of the time that it takes you to get up it, I'm glad you brought that point up because a lot of people don't think that New York City has hills. Let me tell you, you have
0: not run around Central Park. You have not
1: run around Central Park. Yes, some nasty grades actually. Yes, quite long.
0: Exactly, exactly. When whenever we're we're there for the marathon and then they're showing people on the big screens. Uh, you know, like the last five miles, basically through Central Park for the finish line. Uh, people just don't realize how how tough it is. They, the camera makes it look uh, pretty easy. Yeah.
1: I think, and so. so do those runners, let
0: me add. Yes, totally. Um, this, is a, this is part B to this question, but it's actually it could stand alone on its own. And it's something that endurance athletes usually throw out as a reason why they shouldn't add in strength training. Some runners are worried. That too much weight training may increase their upper body strength and size, which will hurt their run performance once racing resumes. Is this a valid concern? How much upper body training is too often, and is this something an endurance athlete would even need to worry about?
1: To be very honest, actually, yes. If you build up your upper body mass to the extreme, it could actually hurt your running in terms of extra weight and not where you really need it. But in all honesty, this is very difficult to do. You would be needing a strength program where you probably were not running very much because you want to actually add mass. You'd have to have some significant changes to your diet with respect to protein intake and when you're taking it in. And it would be massive weights for very few repetitions so the, the program that I would recommend with respect to strength training is not going to give you that additional bulk it, it it's physiologically impossible to get huge from that type of workout so instead it's giving you the long lean and giving you more endurance that you could utilize to make the running itself more economic.
0: Awesome. Uh, Our number three question here is, should these be done year round? With many runners around the world at home, there's an increased focus on doing these kinds of exercises because you're stuck inside. However, many of the exercises you describe sound like they could be performed year round, even if you you aren't relegated to your house, you might be able to do them at the gym. Are these drills and exercises that runners should be performing year round, not just at this time where they're stuck inside?
1: Right absolutely core training should be done year-round minus probably the two weeks of tapering before a very large event and then you could still add in a minute or two of the forearm plank or planks after a run that's not going to be detrimental if you do start to incorporate any actual weight training into the routine that's significant meaning you are doing Two 50 to 60 minute full body strength routines and incorporating that into your training, then I would just take it out of kind of your race season, maybe that three month block where you've got a couple of peaks. Just Reduce that strength training in that block, maybe then only make it body weight and you take them both down to 30 minutes. But if you're actually using weights, it doesn't necessarily need to go into that peak performance stage.
0: Awesome. Uh, Our Number four is where to find visual instructions. You briefly touched on this before, but what's the best resource for runners to get visual instructions on the exercises that you're prescribing? How can a runner ensure that they're doing these exercises correctly? So I think we already talked about this, but again, just to kind of sum it up and uh, give a concise answer on this one.
1: Yes. Although I'm obviously biased, I do think the American Council of Exercise has excellent articles and videos that are just showing a little bit about form. The second one is Less Mills On Demand. This is a $15, I think it's $14.99 a month, on demand exercise platform that has the body pump class in all variations of time. So from 30 to 55 minute versions and the CX works that I spoke about that I actually studied in terms of runners, symmetry, performance, and economy. That is; Those are the best online methods and I can say the Les Mills has incredible verbal explanation of all of the exercises. It also gives you variety in them so they have hundreds of workouts on their platform. Life Fitness is another one that's coming up in the market as having really helpful videos with great visual as well as verbal explanations. And then you can also go to my Instagram or YouTube at Ginger Fitness just to see some very specific and technical explanations both on text and video.
0: Awesome. Uh, so we talked about this uh, with basically the one prop uh, that you used um, during the, the, the last exercise, but what's the minimal viable equipment required to perform these exercises? Or are there any limitations if you're without equipment, if you're just you know, completely unassisted, you're literally only doing body weight or using your body to interact with all these exercises?
1: It can absolutely be body weight only. You can increase either the speed of the exercise or the number of repetitions to still get that overload training effect. So there is zero stress. And as you can see, I only have a tube here at my house. Now, I will admit, due to these restrictions, I have a set of weights coming in, and all I got was two five pounds, two tens, and two fifteens. It actually comes in a set that you can reduce the amount on each side. So we're, we're not talking a lot of equipment here to make this effective and it can be zero. But at the most, again, it would be really 50 pounds would be all even a larger individual would need in order to kind of maximize their benefit with this. Because again, it's more about the repetitions than it is the mass.
0: Awesome. There's been a, a, a pretty good trend going around. I don't know if you've seen on social media, but of uh, people like squatting their pets or picking up, you know, yes. maybe somebody that lives in their house and doing that. So you can definitely improvise if you, if you need the equipment. Uh, and maybe Amazon is delayed with shipping a day. You can definitely improvise around the house.
1: Yes. Honestly, the, the best thing is two milk jugs that you fill with varying amounts of water depending on what exercise you're doing. They're so easy to handle. You can actually kind of flip them over your shoulders so you can have two of them. For squats, you can easily hold it at the handle on the arm of the leg that's going back on lunges. You can hold them at your chest. I mean, honestly, two, ga- two gallon
0: jugs would be a perfect non-method. Awesome, and you can stay hydrated during your workout too. So it's it's perfect. So you take a little
1: of out by drinking. Something.
0: Awesome. Um, so let's say somebody uh, was doing these exercises and they started doing it for um, you know a couple weeks time, build up to a couple months. If you want to do more advanced supplemental training, are there certain workouts that you should do before your run or immediately after your run? So you kind of gave your thoughts on what you should do before to warm up for any activity and then the order you mentioned specifically the order of run and then do the strength and then do the core but let's say somebody has been doing this and they want to add in maybe a dynamic warm up routine or more strength stuff how does that kind of fit in somebody's schedule
1: in terms of before the run the only other addition i would see other than maybe doing some of your warm up activities before you go out is some dynamic mobility. That would mean things like a Hindi squat I mean, if everybody's familiar with that. That's just a feet outside hips. Take your feet outside the hips, sink your hips all the way down, roll the shoulders back. Good to, for a little knee stability to have your elbows out, hands in prayer and just kind of rolling around. This type of mobility exercise is very good. Some dynamic bridges is actually another thing that has been popular lately with runners is after you do some of that light jogging on the spot, getting the heart rate up a bit, then doing that bridge that I showed you earlier, just to wake up the glutes a little bit before you head out on the run. So any mobility, stability kind of getting warmed up is good. But again, especially for the group that I think I'm talking to now, you really want to focus your energy and effort on the run itself. Therefore, it should always be in that top half of the workout. That's just because you're going to have good storage in terms of glucose and simple sugars before you get out there. You don't want to run that out before you hit
0: the road. Awesome. And then our seventh question here before we go into the viewers' questions is what is your motivation? What are ways that you find the motivation to do these exercises at home? Do you have a music playlist? And kind of what do you focus on to keep track and ensure that you finish all of these exercises? Because it takes that little bit of focus, but what motivates you personally?
1: It is always going back to the why for me. And the why for me is it enables me to maintain my running routine which is so much a part of my sanity. Running in the morning is like meditation. I It's something only once or twice a week am I really focused on specific terrain or a speed. For the most part for me it's just getting outside, fresh air, it's that how I start my day and kind of focus myself. If I couldn't do that, I know I would be less productive at work. I know I would be not as fun a person to be around. So if there's ever a moment where I'm thinking, Ugh, I don't want to do 20 minutes because it's still so hard, knowing that it helps me do what I love is really that reminder of the why.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Everybody has their own reason why, but the only one that's important is the one that's important for yourself. But yes. yes. Awesome. Cool. Well, we have a couple um, listener viewer questions here. Um, Will any of these exercises address plantar fasciitis? That's another big one, like another big term that gets thrown around in the uh, running community. But uh, will any of these exercises address plantar fasciitis?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. The, the primary instigator of plantar fasciitis is increases in training duration or intensity that are, two, that are more than that 10% rule. So, if you, especially now, I think people are finding that they have more time in their day. And even I am a prime example of this. This morning, I thought, you know what, I could add on two miles because I don't really have that much right at the top of my day. And I stopped myself knowing that I'm going to be teaching something online, knowing that I needed to practice some exercises later in the day. So you just have to be mindful of that, the distance, duration, and intensity of your runs. Second thing, plantar fasciitis is is very linked to your Gastroc and soleus tightness. Simplest but intense stretches for this and right into it are to simply stand, you still see me, arms yep. away from the wall, lean into it, and hold this diagonal position. I know it sounds so simple, but doing that when you get back from the run or you have a step or entryway into your house, home, apartment, whatever it is, and just dropping your heels off. And last but not least is a traditional calf stretch, which is one leg coming forward and one leg back. You wanna make sure you have it both with the leg or knee extended as well as bent. So you want it to kind of alternate between those two positions to make sure you get both the gastrop and the soleus.
0: And what's a uh, duration that you might hold those for? And should you stay in your running shoes or be in bare feet for those?
1: You can stay in your running shoes. I would recommend them. Also, when you get into the house and you've taken off your shoes, do that lean up against the wall if you're having some plantar issues. And sorry, I'm going to add another one in. It's just making sure that the ankle stays mobile. A lot of people say write the alphabet once a day with each foot. I can never get through past letter J, really. I get bored. So, but before I actually get out of bed, I also do some of those ankle mobility just to get the calf woken up a little bit. Because as you know, when you get up from, and the first thing in plantar fasciitis is that first step.
0: Excruciating. We, we all know that feeling. Yeah, just that, oh, that first step out of bed in the morning. Yes, we, we've all been there. Um, cool. All right. Next question uh, we have here uh, progressing the standing exercises by adding weight. Are there progressions for the planks and the bridges? So, just how would somebody progress? You, you mentioned uh, basically if you start out with, you know, kind of that hover position with for the integrated core and stuff. You could start at 30 seconds, that's great, and building up to two minutes. Would you add weight or is it just generally progressing from like doing these exercises and slowly building up to a set amount? What would you um, do for that?
1: Great. Let's start. Did the person ask about the body
0: weight or the core? Um, it says understand can progress the standing exercises by adding weight. So I think, yes, adding weight to that is is, is understood, but then for the progressions for the planks and the bridges, just add time or, or what's the progression there?
1: Oh, I've got some examples for you. If you can get to two minutes solid, your hips aren't sagging, your hips aren't piking, then start to add some dynamic instability. This can be as simple as you're in your forearm plank position, one arm out and back and you start to work on that in terms of 10 repetitions each side then you can take it to the legs tap the leg out alternating sides then you can get really crazy and do opposing limbs so you do an arm reach and a leg tap and the wider and further away you get from the body would increase that if you're talking the side you're on your side you could do lifts and lowers with the hips, really crazy would be to do a lift of the top leg and a pull into the side. So you're doing little knee crunches in and out. Again, I am max 20 of those while keeping my hips lifted. You can start by lowering onto the knee also. And on the bridge, it would be similar. You pull one knee up, lift the leg up to the ceiling, back into the chest and lower. So you can add dynamic components to these static integrated exercises to increase the activity and challenge once you're once you're solid at two minutes, then kind of go crazy with it.
0: Awesome. That's great advice. Um, So another question here. How low does she recommend going for the squats? She said knee level, um, but I think, I mean, it could have been the the angle of the camera too, but didn't go down that low in the demonstrations. But when you're talking about the body weight squats, you don't have to go, you know, like fully all the way down to the ground. You can go about knee level is about the recommendation.
1: Knee level is my recommendation. Awesome. People, there are many people that can do below knee level safely. But especially for runners where knee health is critical, it just increases the risk and the wear in terms of the cartilage there to go any lower than that. So shoot for the knee height. And it's a good example for me too. I'll do some of those videos from a side angle to actually make sure that I'm getting that that height. And be aware too, when you're videoing yourself, you can look at it. So you're getting a real time feedback and then you can watch it later. So,
0: And then do you use any uh, sort of special software or apps or do you usually just use like the camera um, app on your phone for that?
1: Yeah, I just use the camera app on my phone. And you can also, you can put that grid on there too that sometimes helps with angles if I'm trying to be very specific.
0: Awesome. That's great. Uh, So last question we have here, Uh, should one take any breaks after a run workout before starting the, uh, exercises that, that you do.
1: That is really up to you. I definitely recommend when you get back from your run to make sure that you're drinking some water before you go into these exercises, but then it's going to be based upon how intense and long was your run and will the exercises you're going to be doing quality or not. If not, then take, a break, but make sure you warm up again before you do them. So, once the core temperature comes down or once you've eaten, then it's a, it's a start over. If it's less
0: than 10 minutes, then you can go straight into the strength or core exercises after a run. And one follow up that I have based on that, because I know somebody's probably going to ask this question if I have two workout days per week. Should I do these exercises on my intense days or should I move them to a uh, day where I'm doing nothing but like a recovery run? What would you kind of recommend?
1: I would recommend on the recovery days just because I think it's going to be more quality when you're not so spent after a more intense workout. But honestly, It just depends on when you could do them with quality. And if you're in that mentality of that harder day, that you want to bump that up into it too and kind of make it a full package, go for it. If you can still do it correctly.
0: Awesome. That is all the questions we have. I want to thank you so much Again, Dr. Ginger Goshel for coming on for the Love of Running webinar series. Can you plug one more time where people can find out more about you, find out more what you do, Uh, just just tell people uh, where they can find you?
1: Yes. On Instagram, it's at Ginger Fitness. I also have a website at the same www.gingerfitness.com. But Instagram is great in terms of the videos and postings. Those will start regularly again in April but you can look at the backlog from last year and the same tag for YouTube I'm not great at answering YouTube and or or, pardon me Instagram or Facebook messages I'm not on them a ton so email ginger email at gmail.com
0: awesome and it's ginger with a J as people will see uh, for for the titles here awesome well thank you so much this has been uh, this first live stream of this week. Uh, we hope everybody out there is staying healthy, uh, staying motivated now, and now that you have a, a, a ton of great exercises to add in, uh, we're really looking forward to this this next week as well. So um, thanks again, Ginger. Uh, we look Thank forward to people really asking that. questions. All right, thanks everyone.